Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast of Multi-Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Morehead, and I am Privileged today to have uh, two returning guests. They have each been here individually, and uh, I would encourage folks to seek out those individual conversations in podcasts that we've had in the past, so you can learn more about them and their religious traditions that they go into in more depth in those forums. We won't be able to do that today as we're having a different topic, but my guests are David Dashevin Keys and Stephen Bradford Long, and uh, David is a pagan and an initiate priest in the Firefly House, an organization for Wiccans, witches, magic workers, and other pagans in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, Stephen is a member of the Satanic Temple and a host of the Sacred Tensions podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do, you, do either of you want to add anything to your bios and let folks know a little bit about anything, any updates since those bios or new activities or something you want to mention? Well, I'm now working in more of a leadership capacity within the Satanic Temple as a member of Ordination Council. Um, so I am like much more in the belly of the beast as a Satanist, and uh, which also makes me more of a target for, uh, for, for, you know, the paranoids and, and conservative Christians and people who tend to not understand. Um, I think that's the only update is in to that bio. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Dash, what about for you? Anything? Uh, actually, that's that's still a pretty good encapsulation of me. Uh, I uh, For the last few years, I've been largely focused on my getting a master's in divinity. So that should be wrapping up soon. And then things could change. You know, the situation will change a bit, perhaps. Uh, but for the moment, I've sort of been trying to keep as much uh, stasis as possible in life so that I can focus on work and school and studies and the, all the other complexities that come with life in the, uh, in, uh, 2020 and 2021 here. <laughs> now here's, oh. an, here's an interesting question. You, you uh, Dash, you're going through seminary mm-hmm. training, uh, Steven, you, you're ordained, correct? Through, is yes, that is correct. I'm, okay. I got ordained in March of this year, I want to say. In a Christian context, we call this, you were involved in ministry. Is that a term, a term that you would use or what, what would you call what you're doing in the application of your work in your studies, in your ordination? Um, I call it ministry. Okay. And uh, so the, the branch of TST that I am working in, TST meaning the Satanic Temple, is called Satanic Ministry. And... Um, so people who are curious about that can go to, I think it's ordained.satanicministry.com. Um, I don't know how other ministers would see it. Uh, they would probably use different language and that's totally okay. I see it as ministry, as, uh, caring for the satanic community being, um, and caring for the ministers of the satanic temple as well. So, that to me is ministry. The word ministry is still appropriate for that context. Yeah. Good, good to know. What about you, Dash? Yeah, I think, I think I agree with that as well. Uh, the word ministry often sort of, I think has a, has a Christian lean in America just because of the statistics around religious folks and people who would otherwise be in ministry. But I think the term can apply to, to rabbis or pagans or or Satanists or or whatever. It's in a sort of small M ministry capacity. Uh, It's not a term you'll run into too often in the pagan community. Just, uh, I think there's a lot of folks that find their way towards paganism who have come from other faith communities and they are really seeking the sort of individualistic sort of individualized way of finding uh, finding the divine, uh, if indeed they apprehend the divine at all. And so as a result of that individual streak, uh, that individualistic streak, we haven't really as a community uh, found a way to have 
sort of a broad stroke of ministry. That said, within, say, the Firefly House here in the D.C. area, I think there are a lot of activities that would encompass ministry. The difference being that there's no reason anyone not in the Firefly House would necessarily expect, be expected to or would maybe want to uh, be a part of whatever ministerial activities I'm doing with the house. So everything's sort of its own little sort of congregational setup within paganism. Well, it just struck me as I was, you know, thinking about the backgrounds for you two and, uh, you know, the work that you're doing. And then we get to the issue of terminology and, you know, terminology and vocabulary has certain assumptions, cultural assumptions wrapped up with it. So I just thought that was for, for me personally was interesting. Is it appropriate or is there too much Christian baggage with that concept of ministry to, to draw upon that terminology? But it sounds like mm-hmm. you both are, are comfortable with it as you forge, you know, your own paths for your own religious traditions. So thank you for that. Uh, in this podcast today, we're this is going to come out in the month of October, uh, the month of Halloween. And I wanted to do something on the program that would touch on the, the holiday. As you both know, um, when this time of year comes around, uh, this is when evangelical fears and assumptions and stereotypes um, come to the fore in terms of Halloween. It's assumed and labeled as a, the devil's holiday. And uh, you'll, you'll find books and videos and pseudo documentaries on it, doing exposés and this type of thing. Um, and I wanted to provide some kind of response to that. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to hear from uh, representatives and members of groups that are often scapegoated and literally demonized uh, in connection with Halloween and kind of get your feedback and, and response. So that's the conversation we're going to have today. Um, but to begin, uh, what is your personal connection to Halloween? Do you do you celebrate it as the secular holiday or uh, a v- religious variation of it? What's your personal connection to the holiday, Stephen? Let's start with you. Um, yeah, that's a good question, and it's actually one that I haven't. <laughs> it's it's funny <laughs> because I haven't thought a great deal about it. Um, Halloween is considered one of the satanic temples primary uh like festivals holidays it, it's part of our religious calendar along with several others like hexen hexenacht and um and several others so i yeah that's a good question <laughs> i i love the i for me i i love the vibe i love the energy i love all of that i I am personally not very much of a holiday person, honestly. Mm. Um, I think my that my personal kind of religious ritual is more quotidian. It tends to be more focused on kind of the small daily religious rituals of my life. Um, you know, I have a kind of a daily morning and evening office. Uh, I have um, kind of regular meditation. I regularly connect with... The satanic community I, and so it the big holidays i don't really have a religious calendar in other words mm. like i don't really have a, a a personal liturgical calendar um and that's something that every year i realize and i'm like is this something that i want to incorporate more into my religious life and then i usually because of work because i work way too much i'm just can't i just don't um and it's so my thoughts on halloween don't go much further than that for me personally but it is a really significant holiday for uh satanists and for spooky people in general um, because we, it, it, in part, because we have been so marginalized and it, it is kind of like the, the, the holiday of the marginalized. It's like, if you're, if, if Christmas and getting together with your conservative family, uh, for, for Christmas, if you're gay or trans or have some kind of outsider mentality that makes life really hard with your, uh, home community, Halloween is like one of those escape hatch holidays where you can actually spend time with your chosen family. 
Um, and that's what I observe in a lot of my different communities is that it's like Halloween is, is one of the safe holidays that they can enjoy. Mm-hmm. Those are my random thoughts on the fly. Okay. I appreciate that. I didn't mean that to be a trick question. So there you go. No, it's all good. <laughs> what about you, Dish? So in, uh, I am Wiccan. Uh, that is the, the, the location within the, the wider pagan community that I find myself. And for Wiccans, Halloween is one of the eight uh, major festivals of the year. We, we call them Sabbaths, S-A-B-B-A-T. It's Sabbath, but without the H on the end, because I don't really know why. I think somebody just <laughs> wanted to use the similar word that felt familiar, but also looked a little spooky. Uh, so one of those eight holidays, one of those eight festivals is Halloween, or as we call it, Samhain. It's an old Irish word for that time of the year, for that that date on the calendar. And so for me, it's a both a secular and a spiritual holiday. The secular side, the costumes, the candy, the trick-or-treating, the music, the, the movies, the horror shows, everything else is part of the season, part of the 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 festival uh, as you uh, in a secular capacity. And yet also in the evening, once the trick or treaters sort of go home, I usually do try to solemnize the occasion in a more spiritual capacity as a celebration of Samhain, which uh, for Wiccans and, and other forms of paganism as well is a holiday where we revere our ancestors and the place from which we came uh, as much as we are otherwise sometimes looking a little bit more into where we're going. Uh, So that manifests sort of in two ways, uh, both our literal ancestors, the people that whose chromosomes in some capacity we share, but also what we would often call ancestors of choice in the same way that a family can be biological or a family of choice. We have ancestors that are biological or ancestors that are of choice. And so we will uh, recognize folks who are maybe luminaries in the pagan community who have died over the course of the last year, maybe uh, siblings or parents of, of friends and, and co-religionists that have died during the year, but aren't otherwise really part of our, our biological family, all the way out to folks that we just revere because of their impact in the world. Uh, and and we wish to raise up their, their history, raise up their names in some place of honor in a spiritual capacity during this time of the year too. Well, I, I appreciate both of your responses on that coming from very different places. So let me just add my two cents as an unusual evangelical on my interactions with Halloween. I, I grew up in the 1970s uh, and it, in California, and there just wasn't much Halloween to celebrate out there. Even My brother and I were just really into it. It was just our holiday. I moved to Utah about uh, 20 years ago, thinking I'm moving to a Mormon majority culture, it's going to be even less Halloween out there. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that Halloween, for whatever reason, is huge out in Utah. Uh, Haunted houses all over the place and uh, tons of trick-or-treating, not what I would expect for a conservative Mormon population. So I was entranced. Um, As an adult, looking at the historical and religious and cultural background of Halloween, I came to embrace it even more because of some of the things that you mentioned, that it, it can be understood in some quarters as kind of a holiday for the marginalized. I mean, it deals with, once, once you move beyond the secular trappings, the costuming and the candy distribution and all of that, there really is this wrestling with liminality, uh, with death, um, living in death's shadow, taking on alternative identities temporarily, um, in its history, there was a mocking of, uh, you know, positions of power through the costuming and this kind of thing. So I, fa- I find that there, even as a Christian, there's lots of things that I think anybody can really uh, appreciate and interact with. Um, and so I really find it a, a fascinating holiday and time of year, which is why I am so concerned with a lot of the stereotypes and misunderstandings that many Christians bring to it. Does, does any of that resonate? with either of you yeah i think there is the the stereotypes that connect it to um evil or maleficent forces and maleficent ideas are present in the the sort of cultural 
understanding in in some areas uh, around maybe not even just the holiday of Halloween, but sort of this time of year. Uh, you you see it manifest in the urban legends. I remember when I was growing up that um, there was fear of people who would put razor blades into apples or who would who would push pins through and into the candy bars, things like that. So even the secular side of things seemed to have a an air of danger to them, uh, whether that was spiritual danger or physical danger, I think both end up getting wrapped up in the way that America approaches this season and and, and Halloween in specific. John, there is something that you said that stood out to me, which is that Halloween is a holiday of liminality and that it's kind that it's a festival during which we as a culture can try on new things. We can try on different costumes. Uh, we can mock power. We can explore the liminality between life and death and all of that. I really wonder, and this is something that I wonder on a regular basis whenever this kind of topic comes up is if there is, if that is kind of the intrinsic enemy of fundamentalism that liminality and fundamentalism are are natural enemies in a way that there is something about liminality in the same way there's something about imagination uh there's something about um games there's something about fantasy mm. There, it, kind of like with Dungeons and Dragons, right? There's there's something about um, moving between different roles. There's there's something about that that is deeply, deeply threatening to more entrenched, hegemonic, fundamentalist ideology. It doesn't matter what kind. I mean, there there's fundamentalism of all different stripes and all different kinds of religion, right? There are fundamentalist Satanists, <laughs> and so. But but I think that that I I I don't know. I don't I don't know how to go any deeper than that. But that's something that I continually wonder about. And Joseph Laycock, who's a mutual friend of all of ours, I think, has a book called Dangerous Games, where he talks about why it is that in the eighties religious fundamentalists were so terrified of Dungeons and Dragons. And part of it was this sense of moving between imagined worlds, moving between shared imagined worlds, what he called paracosms, and how that is fundamentally destabilizing to kind of a hegemonic religious structure uh, that, that wants to maintain like a death grip on on uh, the adherence worldview, right? Mm. I sometimes wonder if that is part of why Halloween terrifies people. Anyway, mm. go on. <laughs> Dash, you, you look like you had something on your mind. Yeah, I, I, largely I was going to agree, but I think it comes from the possibilities that liminality exists in a state of transition it exists in a place between a and b and there's at least the opportunity within that transition to go in a different direction and to go into a space that that is neither a nor b you might end up in c or d and in a more rigid community a more rigid structure that that possibility uh, could be seen as as problematic in the same way that I think many folks encounter uh, an authority figure in life, religious or otherwise, who just doesn't have a good answer to a question and says because, and and that because answer is the protection of the rigidity of of a person's understanding of themselves and the the world that they inhabit. And when you're in a liminal space, suddenly it's a lot harder to understand the world you inhabit, a lot harder to understand what the next step is because it's it's open to chance maybe or open to being changed by a person's actions in a way that maybe other situations aren't. Yeah, I I guess part of the reason why I've always approached this differently is I I spend a lot of time in liminal spaces and I I think I thrive in that area. Uh, whether it's going to Burning Man uh, to do research and have the experience as a part of my graduate studies, 
or being involved in interreligious dialogue, which I think is a constant liminal space uh, that I find far more enriching and spiritual than just sticking to my own tribe and doing the church thing. Um, it just doesn't appeal to me. I love that liminal space. But I have had pushback over the years from my own religious community by participation and connection with Halloween in the liminal space. So years ago, I used to be a guest speaker at a Cornerstone Festival from Jesus People USA. They used to have this annual festival and they had a venue called the Imaginarium. I used and to go there. I'm so sorry to interrupt. That's okay. I used to go there every year. We are we are both Cornerstone veterans. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I was doing uh, Imaginarium. They were talking about Halloween. And one of the things they did was they, uh, they had sugar skulls for the Mexican uh, Day of the Dead celebration. And I found that just a fascinating cross-cultural experience. Uh, and we had fundamentalist Christians who were there who later wrote about how we were involved in syncretism and, mm. and uh, Mexican religious rituals that were inappropriate. And then I had an opportunity of a, a colleague of mine, Phil Wyman, who uh, used to, to live in Salem. And I went out at Halloween and saw what he was doing, engaging with the, the pagan community, uh, especially at that time of year. And just that, that experience of being in that space where Halloween is such a huge festival for the whole community, and then receiving pushback from, again, from fundamentalist Christians that this, you were in, you were in a, the devil's city uh, celebrating the devil's holiday. Um, so I really think there is this, there is this connection of fear to the process of liminality and association with dark spiritual forces that I just don't understand within my own religious community. Uh, it, I, I, maybe I could understand it if it, I felt it was somewhat informed by good history, good understanding of the culture, mm. but I just don't find it there. It's just a fear of people and spaces, uh, as well as festivals that, that, that I find very problematic. You know, there's one scholar in particular who I, I think you interviewed. Actually, you were one of the you, you were the person who connected us, S. Jonathan O'Donnell, okay, yes. who's, who's in Ireland. So occasionally a scholar comes along who is outside of Satanism, who helps me understand my Satanism much more deeply. And S. Jonathan O'Donnell is one of those people. They have a book called Passing Orders. And they talk about how in the Garden of Eden, it, part of the myth of the Garden of Eden is is how Satan, the serpent, is a, is a liminal character that can kind of shift in and out of the, what is supposed to be the impermeable wall of Eden, right? And so it's like Eden is supposed to be this fortified compound within which no evil exists. And yet here is the snake, which of course, historically was not intended to be Satan, but as tradition continues, been that the snake is now synonymous with Satan. So, there part of what part of the kind of the nightmare in the story of Eden is that Satan can trespass. It is that these dark forces can move in and out of what is supposed to be this kind of fortified compound of God's goodness, right? Mm -hmm. And and this is kind of a socioeconomic reality, sociopolitical reality, I mean, for modern day America, right? And our fear of immigrants is very similar. Our fear of uh, the LGBT community. I, I'm, by our, I mean America's cultural fear of these forces, minority religions as well. It's like, you know, we, we, sh we are a city on a hill. We are this paradise on a hill. And it should be a fortified compound. And yet, evil can come in in disguise as the snake. And that is the nature of Satan. And, and that helped explain my own Satanism. Because my own Satanism is one of the core principles is to resist purity. It is to resist... Um, absolutism. It is to resist um, kind of hegemonic purity of any kind, right? And so, John, what you're talking about of, of living in that liminal space 
and <laughs> and then the absolute terror of some people in your evangelical community at liminal spaces like Halloween. I don't know. I feel like there's something deep and archetypal mm-hmm. and kind of primordial about the fear of trespass uh, that that there's you know the the trespassing snake entering Eden there's and you're engaging with the snake right when you do interfaith conversation you are you are engaging with the snake and I don't know it's irrational it is subliminal but I it, it but I feel like it makes sense on a primordial level hmm. does that am I making any any sense yeah, yeah, I, I think, yeah. I think yeah. so. I think I would add to that. Um, one of the things I've found interesting, it comes from mathematics, even though I suck at math, the idea of bounded sets and centered sets. And evangelicals like the bounded set. They like boundaries and they focus on the boundaries. And when you do that, then your, your focus is on who's in and who's out. And you're comfortable with the insiders and you want to make sure you keep the outsiders at bay. Then there's a centered set where you've got a boundary, but it's kind of fuzzy and you're really concerned about what's at the center. What's, what's the center of your community. And that's kind of where I am. I'm more focused on the centrality of of Christ as the center of my community and the boundaries are there, but I'm not going to worry about policing them. And that that's really not where many evangelicals are. They want to make sure those boundaries are, are set, they're policed, they're reinforced. And so the liminal is opposite of that. Um, we, we don't want to go to those spaces, right? You know, uh, we want to make sure the boundary and the wall is there, um, and that kind of thing. So I, I think you're onto something there. Yeah. Would you describe it as the difference between an emphasis on orthodoxy versus orthopraxy? Because that's one of the things that I keep thinking about myself is that, you know, as, as, as a, non-theistic Satanist, I am way more concerned about orthopraxy and treating my neighbors with compassion and kindness, no matter who they are, disagreeing graciously and compassionately, finding common ground. And, and so that to me is ortho, orthopraxy, right action. And then I sometimes wonder if there are religious communities that are far more focused on orthodoxy and and protecting the boundaries of belief and being more concerned with what one believes rather than how one acts does that make sense is that yeah it definitely does that makes, relate does that, that, that relates i i would take it a step further i, I think uh, evangelicals as a part of the the protestant tradition in the west have especially emphasized orthodoxy it's all about having the right doctrine, the right set of beliefs, and that that's related to the who's in and who's out. Mm-hmm. And orthopraxy comes in a distant second, and usually missed completely is the idea of orthopathy, mm-hmm. right feelings or right emotions. And that's where I really come down. Um, there's a, a scholar friend of mine, uh, Terry Muck, who has defined interreligious dialogue. One of the he wrote a journal article, and one of the definitions he includes is. Uh, interreligious dialogue as an emotion, an attitude, and a way of life. And I, when I first read that, I just really resonated with it. You need to do so. It's not just about what do I believe in regards to what you believe or practice. It's how do I feel in relation to my relationship with you and our conversations that we have. And I, I don't think that evangelicals even consider orthopathy except in terms of that boundary maintenance, that you are a threat, you are the other, your doctrine contradicts mine, your worldview is at odds with mine, and therefore I must constantly redefine and reinforce the boundary. And Halloween is a part of that. Um, your, Your communities are perceived as being the ultimate evil other by many evangelicals, many conservative Christians, and what they understand to be a, holo- a holiday that you connect and resonate with that manifests in popular culture, this great evil is something that must be opposed. I'm just in this conversation with you, I'm just kind of speaking out loud and trying to understand the psychology as it relates to the theology of evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what, what is your response individually? Maybe you, maybe you don't even think about it. Maybe you've personally gotten over it either your personal response or what you think some in your community's response is to this annual anti-Halloween demonization that goes on 
by evangelicals as it relates to how they understand your religious communities? For me here in the Washington DC area, it's largely a remote freak out for lack of a better way of putting it. Like it happens and we're aware of it, but this area is extremely diverse because of the embassies and the government and the folks that are here to work between and within those. We've got some of the most diverse uh, religious communities in the uh, area, if not maybe the East Coast, just because we have so many people from other parts of the world that have found their way to the DC area for work, for school, for, for fun, what have you. So in this area, it doesn't come up very much. Uh, I think in the wider pagan community, we do uh, certainly uh, have a sense that this time of year creates some fears around our practices, that this, if, there, if there's any time of the year uh, that we pagans end up on TV or on the radio or on podcasts per se, it tends to be during October. Uh, uh, and where you know, many of us are very willing to be a part of that, uh, because we can see it as an opportunity to try to educate or share. Um, but, uh, it does sort of feel like the spotlight gets shown on our community at this time in a way that we sort of fly a little bit less. Uh, a little bit more under the radar uh, during the the other parts of the year, despite having other holidays that coincide with other parts of the year. So this one's the big one that we we tend to get the most attention the, the when we tend to get the most uh, interest in folks that uh, that come by, which is then at odds with the practice of Sawin, which is so much uh, which is very introspective and very inward facing. Uh, so we end up having to sort of be extroverted uh, during a portion of this time, but then also introverted uh, during the, our own spiritual practices. I think Dash just hit the nail on the head. I mean, Satanism. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, I, important thing to be aware of here is I think that Satanism and Wicca, even though historically they have butted heads quite a bit, we're kind of like, you know, distant siblings. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, we, we both come out of the same religious stream and mm. we, we both come out of the same religious uh, uh, traditions in a lot of ways. You know, we both come yeah. out of Western esotericism and a lot of our uh, historical founding lights are the same. Um, and so a lot of what Dash said applies exactly i feel like to to the satanic community as well and um the sense of it being kind of a remote freak out is definitely true the sense of it being also the time when the spotlight shines on us is also very true and it it becomes honestly you know for me if i had been smart about this when i came out as a satanist publicly i would have done it under a pen name because there are genuine mm. concerns for there i we do have genuine concerns in this community about yeah. safety and uh that that sense does get heightened uh around halloween precisely because the spotlight does kind of fall on on the weird spooky religions that freak out the wasps so <laughs> you know like all the all the wiccans and all the and all the satanists and all the pagans etc cetera, etc cetera. um it's like that's the time of year when people are suddenly aware that we exist and there is a sense of um it's never in the it's never in the forefront but there is a sense of heightened insecurity during that time honestly uh because especially in the age of QAnon, um where you know there are people there are truly people who believe that we are um you know murdering children there are truly people Right. who who believe horrific things about us and it feels like the volume on that turns up some during halloween and honestly this might be part of the reason why i very like not i don't publicly celebrate it <laughs> because it i mean that might be one of the reasons why um 
And so, yeah, everything that Dash said resonates very much for me. Yeah, I appreciate that sharing and that vulnerability. Uh, it's just interesting how I constantly run into these stereotypes, which I think are indeed heightened at this time of year. Um, unfortunately, I'm not able to do this podcast kind of work full time. I've got another job that pays the bills like, like you folks. Um, but at work, a couple of folks found my podcast and they were just blown away and were asking me questions about the people I talked to. And I, I just decided to do a little promo. And I said, well, I've got an upcoming conversation with the author of a book on compassionate Satanism. And the woman just looked at me and her eyes got really big. And she said, well, you're going to need some special blessing for that. And I said, why is that? And she said, well, because <laughs> I saw a program, I think it was on the Discovery Channel about uh, Satanism and how uh, they uh, they use satanic priests to bless the drug lords to protect them as they sell drugs uh, internationally. And all, all these stereotypes started coming out. And I gave her a little pushback and she said, well, what about, you know, Santeria and, and all that? And it, it was evident that she needed a good basic course in religious studies. Um, mm -hmm. but, but again, it was the fears and the stereotypes and the misunderstandings that were coming through um, about your religious traditions. And then I think that they just get magnified even more so at this time of year. Now, you, you mentioned the Western esoteric tradition. Is it, is it incredibly frustrating that many evangelicals, the go-to fear and label is the occult? Uh, Halloween is occultic and, uh, and all of this kind of stuff. And, and the occult is immediately, one, I think it's tremendously misunderstood by evangelicals. They probably never even heard the term Western esoteric tradition. It's just the shorthand <laughs> label, the occult, you know, and, and there's all kinds of things that are put under it, you know, all forms of divination, which is fascinating because if you look carefully at biblical studies, there are approved forms of divination that are practiced in the Old and New Testaments. Mm -hmm. And yet the assumption is on a popular level that all of that is to be dismissed because it's the, again, it's the occult. So is it frustrating to you as those who are trying to go deep in your religious tradition uh, by way of self-understanding and then communicate that to others that Christians continually misunderstand and basically are reductionistic in, in what they understand one of the basic elements to be, the occult, and then when they connect it to Halloween, that the, the whole uh, tradition, the whole uh, holiday is written off in connection with that. Yes. <laughs> so would you expand I, yeah, a little bit? <laughs> um, the reductionism happens, so especially in regards to the occult, um, I consider myself an occultist. I consider myself a, a non-theistic, so not a very graceful terminology, a non-theistic mystic. I need to come up with a better way of saying that. But uh, and and a and a non-theistic occultist. Um, so I am a practitioner of the occult. I love the occult. And, um, and to me, that is not in conflict with my identity as a, a non-theistic Satanist. So those two things kind of converge very nicely for me. Um, the frustrations are from several different directions. The, the reductionism happens in many different ways. One is the assumption that the occult is simply aesthetics. Um, that now aesthetic is very important. You know, I have so many Eastern Orthodox friends who tell me that they converted to Eastern Orthodoxy because of the iconography, because of the art. So, mm. um, you know, iconography and aesthetic is extraordinarily important in any religious tradition. Uh, so, and there is an occult aesthetic that is very important to me, as you can see looking at my office. However, um, it's when it seems to be, when people reduce it down to, this is just a surface aesthetic. There is, and there is nothing deeper than that. There, there's nothing deeper than, than the surface, um, than the gloss. Uh, when the truth is that the Western esoteric occult tradition is vast, it is rich, it is often in conflict with itself. Mm -hmm. it, is, um, it, it is the Western folk religion that 
uh, as a Satanist, I am an inheritor of. And so that is, there's, there's real depth there. There's also the assumption, like you said, that it is simply evil, <laughs> that it is simply, you know, darkness and ugliness and demons. And uh, that is also not true. Um, and then there's also the assumption that it is a, that it's a troll, that you're, you're just edgy. You're, you're just, you're, you're just uh, an internet edgelord. And what I try to do with my writing and my podcast is to demonstrate that, no, this is really a philosophy of life. This is real. There is real depth here for me that helps to form my my meaningful relationships my partner as well my partner is a theosophist and um, is also deeply rooted in the western esoteric tradition and so our household our home is steeped in in esotericism and in the occult and it shapes how i interact with everyone and the universe itself right and <laughs> and so this is this is deep for me it it isn't a troll the fact that it looks weird is so incidental the fact that it that it appears spooky and weird and makes people uncomfortable is an afterthought the i that uh the fact that a satanism especially is spooky and weird and creepy to people is an afterthought. The meat of it, the the um, the real experience of it is one of a life giving philosophy that contextualizes my life. And so, yes, it is the the reductionism is real. All of that is missed to either pure evil, pure aesthetic, or pure cringe. <laughs> Dash, any thoughts on that? Uh, I ran out of battery power on my other headset, so I am switching it real quickly. Okay. I do have some thoughts on that, though, uh, as I manipulate my technology here. The, I think the, um, uh, I think the biggest thing that uh, I agree with everything Steven said, except oddly, I don't find it as uh, personally problematic. Uh, uh, not to you know, offend Stephen in any capacity. But like, for me, the the fact that other people look at something and say, ew, that's not for me, or ew, I don't understand that or even uh, misrepresent whatever it is that they see. Um, that doesn't that doesn't, uh, it doesn't impact me, I think, as much as I, I sort of feel from your words, Stephen, that it, that it impacts you. Uh, I don't know if that uh, I don't think that that represents like a, a, a less deep uh, interest for myself in the occult or in esoteric, the Western esoteric tradition. I think um, I think I cultivated a, a while ago a, a sense of sort of you do you attitude around a lot of the slings and arrows that would that would come my own personal way. I do think as a broader community, we do care pretty deeply in Wicca and in paganism about the idea that our practices and our um, sort of theologies are linked in the cultural mindset to evil and that whatever is occult, whatever is hidden must be hidden for a good reason. And that reason is always bad. It's never, it's never hidden because it's private. Uh, Cause we all have, we all have things that we keep hidden. We all have things that are occult in the, just the pure meaning of the word simply because they happen behind the walls of our house or, or within uh, an office space that is not privy to the public's knowledge yet. And so on some level, uh, all of these different ways to approach what is hidden sort of get mashed up in my brain space. And on the other side of it, I just sort of shrug uh, personally, uh, even if as a representative or a leader in the community, I would be first on the line to try to fight to make sure that nothing, no rights get taken away from us as a part of that cultural understanding or that cultural misunderstanding. Uh, for me as a person, I'm I'm more than willing to to allow others to to have their point of view even if i think it's wrong uh mostly because frequently they're not 
in the space with me. So they people being wrong on the internet's just a day that ends in Y. So uh, the 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 I uh, I don't know, uh, Stephen. Uh, maybe this sparks something for you. Part of it could be just that I've been doing this for twenty three. You know, years I was now. I was yeah. actually <laughs> just about to bring that up. No, you know, I I joined. So I I left the Christian faith. Um, I want to say in 2016-ish, 2017-ish, and then I discovered the Satanic Temple in 2017. And so it might really, listening to you speak, it, I think it really might be a matter of like maturity within one's religion, mm. right? You know, like I'm, I'm still, I'm still a, a baby, honestly, which is, which is strange for me to say, because, you know, I'm, I'm so active in the satanic community, but really I'm, I'm like an infant in, mm. in this community, whereas you have been doing uh, your work and, and your practice for like decades now. And I sometimes wonder, I sometimes wonder if that accounts for a lot of, <laughs> for, for a lot of my, my frustration and that, because I, I went through the exact same thing with being gay. It's like when I first came out, it was, it, I, I cared very deeply what people thought of me and I cared very deeply about all of that. And then it's like over the years, it's just like, you know, I, it's, it's fine. I'm okay. <laughs> right. It might be something comparable to that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do think there's a, um, I do think that time in a community helps one to both see the, uh, the dusty corners, uh, of, of that community in a way that when you first show up in any space, things might seem bright and shiny and, and special and new and exciting. And so maybe part of it also comes from, for me, the occult, the Western esoteric tradition, these ideas are, I'm going to use the phrase old hat, which means not, not to imply that they're unimportant or that I've put them in the closet and I don't, I don't take them out of their hat box anymore, but that, uh, these misconceptions, these things that people think about when they hear the word occult or when they, when they think about Halloween, uh, and, and spooky seasons and all that, um, these are things that have come around and around and around and around for me for since the late nineties. And mm -hmm. so maybe routine is a, is a better way. This feels routine, uh, to, to me, to, to encounter these sorts of thoughts and these sorts of feelings and others. And the best I can do is hope that in a conversation similar to the one that the three of us are having, if that opportunity is presented between myself and another person that I might be able to, to help dispel some of those misconceptions. Um, it, it doesn't always work and it works better face to face than it, than it ever works, um, ever works online in the comment section of websites and what have you. But, uh, but the, the, you know, the, the, the struggle, the struggle is real and it goes on. <laughs> I'm going to ask you both in a moment for put your thinking caps on here to, uh, mention some suggested resources that folks might engage with. But before that, I want to get your, your response to uh, th there's a, a gentleman who's been working in interfaith named uh, Christer Stendhal, and he can, yeah. is known perhaps best for the idea of holy envy, that if you really uh, appreciate another religious tradition, you, you really need to understand it empathetically in such a way that you have holy envy for something within it. And I try to, to live and practice that. And, and one way in regards to Halloween and, and death festivals, uh, I mentioned earlier that I had an opportunity years ago to go to Salem. And when I was there, I interacted with uh, members in the community, including the pagan community. I had an opportunity to participate in a dumb supper hmm. and uh, where one sits silently, partakes of foods as a way of connecting with lost loved ones, family members, ancestors, and that kind of thing. And I found it tremendously uh, moving, even though it was uh, a ritual and a practice outside of my religious tradition, it caused me to realize that, you know, it's amazing to me in the Christian tradition, we talk about death and the afterlife and resurrection and this type of thing. But I really think we have imbibed from the Western uh, sanitization of death. We keep mm -hmm. death away from us. Uh, funerals and the concept of death are sanitized and we just want to, let's do the funeral and then we move on. There's no sense of continued connection with those that we have lost. We're very individualized rather than community oriented. 
and so I think there's much in, in my tradition that I can learn and appreciate from something like the Dumb Supper. And I think many Christians are, are not as enriched as they could be by interacting with something like a Dumb Supper and with the elements of liminality from Halloween. What would you, your, your response be to, to that kind of reflection? I completely agree. <laughs> I mean, just the I'm I'm I've never heard the idea of religious envy the way you just articulated it, which is if you're doing interfaith dialogue well, you will find something to be envious of yeah. that. That's a new concept to me. And that's really helpful. Um, I'm going to be thinking about that for a bit. Uh, I off I, the, the the concept is less new to me, um, John. I think it was you uh, many years ago, probably that introduced me to the term as well. Um, but also through John and I have a mutual friend named uh, Carrie Graham, who also I think uh, represents uh, that concept and and helps to produce that feeling of holy envy in the people that are are working within uh, her organization. And so I've encountered that a lot, uh, and I I frequently feel like when when you can get to that point, when you can look at another community and say, there is a piece of that that I almost wish was a part of my community uh, or that I do wish was a part of my community, it really means that you're starting to connect with that group. And it doesn't have to be holy envy. It just has to be um, uh, almost a wistfulness because it's not envy in the covetousness or the sort of nasty negative connotations that that word can take on. It's envy in the wishful uh, sense of a lack of fulfillment, that there's something over there that if I just had it over here, uh, something would be made more complete. Um, and uh, I encounter that a lot, uh, actually, and in a bunch of different uh, circumstances. And I, I think it can be an amazing um, yardstick to help measure a person's encounter with the other. I just want uh, Christians who may be listening to, to make sure they understand where I'm coming from on this. I'm not saying that by practicing holy envy, that we therefore embrace the totality of another tradition. There, there are differences between traditions, mm -hmm. and there are good reasons why there are differences, and, and we celebrate commonality as well as difference. But that doesn't mean that one cannot uh, find something of immense value and in a positive sense uh, have practice holy envy. So, for example, uh, example uh, Stendhal uh, went to the uh, opening of a Mormon temple, I think it was in Sweden, and expressed publicly his appreciation for one of the practices within Mormonism of baptism for the dead in the temple. Now, I, I have, and I think he did too, theological disagreements with the, the practice in and of itself. Nevertheless, he was able to find benefit and appreciate uh, aspects of why they do that. I think mm. the Mormon community has a much greater sense of connection uh, posthumously with lost loved ones, and that broadens their sense of community that I think is missing in uh, many other uh, Christian traditions. And so I, I think he was correct. In, it's going to sound strange, but at the same time, we can find holy envy and yet still find aspects of disagreement at the same time. There's kind of this interesting tension there. So th that's what I'm trying to articulate by mention of that. Mm. I don't know if that clarification is helpful. It is, yeah. It, it, go yeah, ahead. go on, go on, go on. Uh, uh, we're drawing towards the end of our time, and I appreciate with differing uh, schedules and all this. Uh, for me, this has been an enriching conversation, and uh I just find it fascinating, both of you individually, and then when I bring you guys together, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, taking a cup of Starbucks coffee and adding something <laughs> more amazing to it. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah, hit, hitting that time of year where I get to go to Starbucks and get my uh, pumpkin spice cream. I mean, you guys are, you guys are the, the drink for me today. So I appreciate <laughs> that. But, but as we bring this to a close, what any resources that you would recommend to an open-minded Christian who wants to rethink not only their understanding of Halloween, we're not saying you got to embrace it, but mm. maybe come to a new understanding of it, especially as it relates to some of the stereotypes and misunderstandings they have about Halloween in connection with your religious communities. Mm -hmm. And it could be a book, article, video, whatever. So 
Go on, go on, Dash. Okay. Um, we both inhaled at the same moment. Uh, <laughs> on the on the topic of articles, the the website pathios.com, which um, uh, has a pagan channel, the, there's a lot of resources there that will talk about uh, the holiday Samhain. Uh, Samhain is not spelled the way it sounds. It is spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, even though it is said not like that at all. So Samhain uh, would be the name, the keyword to maybe search for on the Pathios Pagan channel, and you will bump into a wealth of articles that have been written over the course of the last uh, many years, maybe a decade or so of that channel's uh, existence. Um, if you if you prefer book uh, topics, I'm switching windows on my machine. If you prefer, prefer books, um, there is a, a book out there uh, called uh, Sawain Rituals, Recipes and Lore for Halloween. Uh, uh, John, I can I can send you a, a link to it uh, when when we're done here. Um, that they're small books. They're just sort of pamphlet sized, 100 pages, 150 pages tops. And those there's one for every one of the eight Wiccan holidays. But this one would be just about Samhain. And they're a nice focused encapsulation of the way that people who are Wiccan um, uh, or, or or of other pagan flavors who who celebrate the eight Wiccan holidays, uh, how we approach this time uh, and how what we might do and where the lore of the holiday interacts with the modern practice of the holiday. Awesome, thank you, Stephen. What do you think? Yeah, so I have three suggestions um, on the topic of Satanism, specifically the Satanic Temple. Um, and how that interacts with the broader culture. I really recommend Joseph Laycock's book, uh, Speak of the Devil, How the Satanic Temple is Changing the Way We Talk About Religion. Um, and it's a history of the very short life so far, very young history of the Satanic Temple, but also how it is shaping our cultural conversation. Uh, and that includes things like taboos and outsiders and Halloween. Um, I also really recommend a book by Richard Beck called We Believe the Children, and it is an account of the McMartin preschool trial, which was the biggest and costliest satanic panic trial in American history. And it, it really delves into how the paranoia over Satanists abusing children took shape and how it expressed itself in that era. Um, and, and so understanding that era of 1980s satanic panic is so important because that really carries through into our modern day and attitudes towards things like Halloween and Satanists and witches and pagans, etc. Right. So I would recommend that. And then I would also recommend uh, the articles of Lucian Greaves who is the founder of the Satanic Temple. And I would just go to his Patreon. All of his articles are there for free. Um, Patreon.com forward slash Lucian Greaves. Uh, he's a great writer and he he's the spokesperson for the Satanic Temple. And he's a very good articulator of all of this stuff surrounding Satanic Panic. He talks about Halloween. He talks about taboo. He talks about paranoia, cultural paranoia. He talks about Satanic religious practice. So anyone who's interested in that really needs to check out his work. So those are the three things that I would suggest. Fantastic. Uh, again, I appreciate both of you carving out the time. And I had my list of questions, but this conversation kind of took on a fascinating life and uh, direction of its own that uh, enabled me to, to do some additional reflection on my own tradition and my community. And hopefully uh, it gave you folks uh, opportunity to do the same thing. It's always, always a, a blessing and uh, an exciting form of ministry when I get to, to have conversations with you too. So I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. This yeah. was great. Yeah, I, I second that. Uh, lots of fun and, and, and always a pleasure to chat. Well, I hope folks uh, find, have found this conversation interesting. Uh, you can uh, seek out the, the uh, recommended uh, resources in the podcast notes. And uh, be sure to look at uh, the other podcast conversations I had with uh, both of these uh, folks uh, previously, so you can learn more about their journey and their religious traditions beyond this conversation. We'll include links to those as well. 
My guests in this episode have been Stephen Bradford, Bradford Long and David Dashif and Keese. And uh, we thank them for being here on the podcast. We thank you for watching and listening until the next episode of Multi-Faith Matters Podcast. I'm the host, John Moorhead. Thanks. <laughs>